at the intersection of mental health and parenting, that's where you'll find me. I'm Joni Edelman, and this is Mama Mental, the podcast that explores what it's like to raise human beings while you're still trying to figure out how to be one. and welcome to the podcast that is me talking to you. Except for last week, which was me and my daughter talking together. If you haven't heard that episode, it's a little bit long, but it's also a tearjerker, so you might want to check it out if you want to hear what it's like to be in a relationship as a mother and daughter with someone who's mentally ill and knows it. What I want to say first before I get started is that the concept of this podcast came to me more than a year ago and I recorded the first episode and did nothing with it. Not because I didn't have other ideas of what to talk about or what to say, but because I was really sort of frozen. I was frozen in what some of you might call imposter syndrome or uh, what my psychiatrist would call OCPD, obsessive compulsive perfection disorder. But I'm going to shake it off. Uh, I recorded the episode with Kelsey in hopes that it would get me a little bit, uh, give me a kick in the pants, so to speak, so that I could sit down and just do this without worrying so much about what people were going to think of me, what I was going to sound like, whether or not it would be well received, whether or not it would be boring, whether or not I have enough to say. uh, And I'm just going to, I'm going to put all that aside. And so today, that's what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about that syndrome, the imposter syndrome, the perfectionist syndrome, and how it prevents us from doing the things that we love. About a month ago, or maybe, I guess probably now it was a little bit over, a little bit over a month ago? Let me think. Yeah, so it was a little over a month ago that I was at Big Magic, Cheryl Strayed and Liz Gilbert's retreat, which occurred here in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is luckily where I live. Uh, it was a, it was a several day long experience and most of the guests were staying either at the resort where it happened or in a nearby hotel. I was driving home at the end of each day, which made it a little bit more difficult for me to really have time to process and get my thoughts organized around what I was hearing. So it's taken me a long time to really be able to look at those notes again and remember what I was thinking. What happened, though, is that I came home absolutely fired up to write my book which is what those sorts of things are supposed to do, right? You give them your money and you expect to come away with some new knowledge, some awakening, some sort of aha moment. Uh, and it was true for me. I did come home with, with those moments. I, there was something that Liz said um, that resonated with me so deeply, more than anything else said during the three or four days, and will always stick with me. And that is... This is paraphrasing. This is the way I say it when now when I'm repeating it to people or when I say it to myself. And that is to say, I cannot tell you 
if the thing that you want to do, the art that you want to create, the poem that you want to write, the book that you're working on, the, the composition, the music composition that you're putting together will ever be successful in the way that our culture considers things a success, which is to say it might never make you famous, it might never make you money, it might never make you a dime, it might never even be read by another person or seen or heard. But what I can tell you is that the reason for making the thing is for yourself, because on the other side of making it, you will have been transformed. And that in itself is the, is the reason. That's the reason that art persists. And that's the reason that we continue to go back to it, even when it uh, beats us down so brutally. But it's not just writing and art and music. It, it, it's any, any creative expression. It's keeping a blog. It's um, dancing. You know, maybe you're taking a ballet class as an adult or uh, you decide you want to take up ice skating. It's sewing. It's knitting. It's, it's whatever way you are expressing yourself. Whatever thing that gives you fire. Right. I remember Oprah used to say, you know, just do the thing that you love and everything will work out. And I I love Oprah, but I also think it's important that we acknowledge that that is often not true. You can write and write and write like your life depended on it because it's the only thing you ever wanted to do and you may never get a book deal. You know, that's the real truth. You can... My husband is a musician. He loves to play guitar, drums. He was in bands in college, and when he was a young adult, that was the thing he wanted to do with his life. He's a software developer. He works at PayPal. Okay, that's the sort of thing that his dream got him. And that is not to say he didn't pursue it. He didn't try. He didn't practice. He did all of those things. A music career wasn't in the cards. You could argue that he might have continued on playing the drums, playing the guitar, singing, and would either have A, found happiness in the pursuit of success and been fine, or B, eventually become successful. But you could also argue that he would have traveled the country poor and uh, destitute. Uh, both of those things are, are certainly possibilities. And when you're raising a family, you need food and a house and that sort of thing. So all of that is to say, would I love to say I am a career writer? Yes. Am I sure that I can make a living being a career writer like Liz Gilbert or Cheryl Strayed or Anne Patchett or Anne Lamont or Otessa Mosfig or any of the other wonderful Tara Westover, any of the other wonderful women who are currently gracing the bookshelves with their vast talent. No. That's truth. The problem is, is that that truth often prevents us from doing the thing that we want to do the most. And so I came home from the retreat so excited, so thrilled to get started, so full of anticipation of how wonderful this book was going to be now that the flame had been lit and stoked underneath me by Liz Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed themselves. And I, the first weekend, I sat down and I made a, 
long timeline of my life, which is currently hanging above the desk I'm sitting at right now. I marked on it all of the important days, the important events, um, when I experienced my first depressive episode, when I experienced my first manic episode, when I was diagnosed, when I was medicated, when I wasn't, when I had babies. I wrote all of this out and I was on fire. I was on fire looking at my life and thinking, what a wonderful story this will be to share with people. This story of struggle and abuse and triumph. And then I didn't do anything else. I just closed the book, ripped out the pages and hung them on the wall above me and didn't write anything for a week. I reread all of the books that I had about memoir writing uh, because preparation, right? And then when I finished reading those, I got some more and I read those. And then when I finished reading those, I, I got some more. And then when I finished that, I started journaling about the book. And then when I, when I journaled for a week or so, then I wrote a thousand words. Uh, and I felt, I congratulated myself for sitting down and doing it, even though the words really didn't have a place. They, I didn't know where they would go in my timeline. I just felt like I hadn't made any progress. So I sat down and I, I wrote the story of my mother leaving me at my grandparents' house in 1979. And then I read another book about memoir writing. And that book said, you have to decide your genre. You have to pick what category you're going to fit in before you start. You have to organize your thoughts or else you'll be lost to the wind. You'll write 60,000 words that you end up deleting. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and now I'm going to come up with this, this approach. What am I going to do? What am I going to share? Am I going to do mental health? Am I going to do child, my abusive childhood? Am I going to do being the child of an addict? And I asked my Facebook friends, uh, my Instagram followers, what they wanted to hear when I couldn't come up with an answer myself. I, I just, I went to the polls. Um, and then most people said they wanted to hear my mental health story, which put me right back to square one. I've got my timeline. I've got my life. Now, where do I begin? And for lack of a better word, I was paralyzed. paralyzed by the idea that I had to come up with some way to tell a story that is so ugly and so embarrassing that is so needed and yet so deeply personal and so incredibly humiliating in so many ways. And so I stopped and I didn't write anything again. The thing about creative work and writing is that in, in a matter of an hour, in a matter of, who am I kidding? In a matter of 15 minutes, you can go from I am a superstar, this is going to be amazing, to this is going to be pretty hard and I don't know I can do it, to I am literal garbage and I'm going back to bed and never getting up. That's, that is the, um, that's the natural progression of things. That's the circle that things take when you're, when you're in a creative process. I feel like I'm not alone. I hear this from a lot of people. You, you have in your mind your capability. You sit down to actually put that capability on paper or piano or whatever thing you're going to do. And then you say, oh, wait, this is harder than I thought. And then you say, I can't do it. Never mind. It's not that important. My story's not important. My music's not important. My poetry is not important. 
And then when I couldn't think of what else to do, I read Tara Westover's memoir called Educated, which is excellent. Um, she, it's about her story growing up in Idaho with Mormon uh, sort of fundamentalist parents who are like doomsday preppers. The story's unbelievable. It, at times, it's, it's so outlandish that it seems like it couldn't even be real. But her writing is captivating, and she is an excellent storyteller and a beautiful writer. And this is a woman who did not even go to school until she was in college. She took the ACT to get in to BYU. This is a woman who had no formal education before college and now has a doctorate. And I finished, I read the book and I was just loved it and I finished it and I closed the book and I said, why am I bothering? I'm never going to be able to write anything as good as Tara Westover. I should go back to nursing. Uh, I should um, put my scrubs back on and head back into hospice, which is the thing that I do that I know I can do well. That serves people. And there is no shame for me in that career choice. I'm very proud of the work that I did to become a nurse. And I'm very proud of the work that I did as a nurse in caring for women having babies and people losing their family members. But I want to write. I have always wanted to write. I have always kept some kind of journal somewhere where I wrote things. I have always been a writer and writing something good brings me so much joy and sharing difficult stories and hearing from people that they relate to those difficult stories brings me so much peace because life is easier when you know that you're not alone but you can't know that you're not alone unless there are people talking about it Mama Mental is brought to you by Ravishly.com, your source for feelings, family, and feminism. So after I finished Tara's book, I told my managing editor, uh, Aaron, forget it, I'm not doing it. I can never be this good of a writer. Uh, also, because I like torture, I had read The Glass Castle, a Jeanette Wall's memoir, which is also incredible. I reread Wild. I reread um, Big Magic or Brave Magic. I get it confused with the retreat, but whichever, either big or brave. I think it's big. Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic. I read that again. I reread Eat, Pray, Love again. I did, I'm a fast reader. I did all of this in, in just a couple of weeks time. And every book that I finished that I closed, I was more and more convicted. I have no business writing my story. I have no business entertaining the idea that I'm a capable writer. I have no business doing this. And I told this to Erin, my managing editor, who has a book deal, who's currently working on her memoir about her heroin addiction. And she said to me, no, no, you're writing the book. You're writing it. And everyone says that to me, right? Because that's the thing that good friends do. When you call your friend and you say, I'm giving up, I'm not doing this thing anymore, a good friend will tell you the truth hopefully, and hopefully the truth for them is, no, you must, you must persist, you must continue, you must not give up. Your story is important, your capabilities are there, you are hard on yourself, more so than you need be. And so again, I, I came back to the desk full of energy, and I wrote a couple of thousand words, 
and then a couple thousand more. And then right back again, I was to the place where I said, this is a waste of my time. Why am I doing this? This is never going to get bought. This is never going to get finished. I could be doing so many other things with these hours that I'm spending trying to be articulate. And I stopped again. Because that's the cycle. But here's the thing. The answer to breaking the cycle, I think, for me anyway, is just recognizing that it's a cycle. And so I tell myself the thing that I have said to myself many times before. There is no pain greater than that of an untold story inside of you. And it does not matter if my book is a bestseller. It does not matter if my book is even bought. Of course you want those things. Of course you don't want to pour your heart and soul into something and have people reject it and tell you that you're terrible. But what matters is that the story is on paper. What matters is that you give yourself the space and the time to do that. Because when you do that, you are saying, I am worth these moments. I am worth this energy. And of course you are. Of course you are. And every person does have a story. Not everyone has it in them to tell that story or not everyone wants to tell that story. But the truth is everyone has something because our lives are individual and unique and we are different and our experiences are different. And when we read a book where we can see ourselves, we are brought home into the space of I'm not the only person that experienced this. When I wrote an article a few years ago about being the child of an addict, uh, I, I, there was an enormous response to the article when it was written. HuffPost syndicated it and it went all around the world into many different languages. And I just last, a couple of weeks ago, received a message from someone in French. I don't speak French. I have no idea what it said, but I know it was about the article because the article was linked. And this has happened in the, gosh, I think it's been three or four years maybe since I, well, no, it's been three years since I wrote that article. It just pops up at times uh, and someone will pop into my inbox and tell me how they had never known that other people shared these experiences. They had never known that they were not alone in their feelings of inadequacy. And yes, there is inadequacy. If you are the child of an addict or an alcoholic, and I'll do an episode about that at some point, but if you are the child of an addict or an alcoholic, there is inadequacy. That inadequacy is built into you for reasons beyond your control, and it is in you just as your blood is in you, just as your the color of your hair is in your cells, just as the color of your eyes is in your, your makeup. It is woven into your DNA. The feeling that you will not be good enough. There are different reasons for that feeling when you're in a, in a child of an addict situation. But the, the thing is, is that Regardless of what kind of addict your parent or guardian was, uh, you will share traits and commonalities with other people. So 
three years later, I'm still getting, still getting letters. I'm still getting letters from people. I'm still getting emails from people. I'm still being contacted by people who take the time to write me pages and pages about their own childhoods. And when I feel like my story doesn't matter, when I feel like my story is just another story in a sea of stories, I remind myself that there are people out there who need it. And I remind myself that I need it. Even if there was no other person, I need it for myself. And I go back to the desk and I do it again and I do it again because that's what we do. that is preventing you from accomplishing the thing that you want to accomplish is a liar. The fear is trying to protect you. It thinks it's protecting you from inevitable letdown. It thinks it's protecting you from the future of you putting yourself out there and finding out that no one really wanted what you had. It thinks it's protecting you but it's suffocating you. Because the truth is, is that success, we believe culturally to be money, recognition, and fame. By all uh, estimations, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, was not a success. The first person he took Moby Dick to told him no. And you hear this story with many, many, many writers. They've sent out their manuscripts and received rejection letters. Some of the best writers were not recognized as the best writers until long after they were dead. They never even lived to see their own success. I think of, of the phenomenon that is Sylvia Plath and how much feminists revere her and her poetry, and her brazen way of life, and how we mourn her death. And I think she never knew any of that. Fame, that kind of fame was never something she was acquainted with. The fact is, she wrote because she needed to. And I would love to say that that kind of approach, I'm just going to do it because I love it, always equals quote-unquote success, but of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. What it does, though, is it demonstrates to you what you're capable of. And that itself is worth the engagement. Because you are capable of writing the book or the essay or the poem. And you are capable of composing the music. And you are capable. You are capable of learning. You are capable of growth. But you cannot know that unless you push yourself. And sometimes you cannot even know that unless you fail. Think about the moments in your life that you would consider shaping. Think about them. Think about a time that you can call on that you would consider a defining moment. Think about it. I'll tell you mine. When I was about 
uh, four years old, not quite yet five. My mother took me to my grandparents. Uh, she left me there for the summer. My father and her were getting divorced. I didn't know that at the time. But I was a very stubborn child, and, and my things had already been tumultuous. They fought a lot. My mom drank a lot. She smoked a lot. She had a lot of people over. So uh, I already remembered, you know, already associated life with trauma and with resiliency. And for this summer that I was at my grandmother's house, I begged and begged and begged and pleaded and pleaded and pleaded for her to allow me to walk her dog. Her dog was a, a chocolate-colored Weimaraner that she called Hershey. And it was a beautiful dog. They lived in the desert um, the, of California, Southern California, in a place where there was a military base. My grandfather was a the commander of the base. They had a very big, beautiful home, horses. Um, it was it was very idyllic for me because my grandmother was, to me, all of the things that my mother was not. And it was a wonderful, wonderful summer. Sorry, that was my shoe. It was a wonderful summer. But I wanted so badly to walk this dog. I, I was a slight, slight child. I was so small. I was a waif. I mean, really, just a, an elf. I was an elf. Uh, I must have weighed, at almost five years old, 40 pounds, tops. But I was stubborn as a mule and insistent, and I wanted so badly to walk this dog. Well, this type of dog is a birding dog. They're trained for hunting. And my grandmother warned me many times, you must be careful because the dog will run after the birds. And I told her, oh, no, no, I, I can do it. I can do it. I'm capable. And so I leashed the dog up and I put on my sandals and... She lived at, at a, on a gravel, on like a gravel road at the end of a gravel road out in this just desolate space. And uh, I walked out and I started walking the dog. And in this part of California, there are a lot of quail. Quail, if you aren't familiar, these are like the birds in the partridge family. They walk mostly. They don't fly. I don't know why. But when you see them, it's usually they're running along the road. And... Surely, a, a family of quail passed in front of us, and the dog took off. And in that split second, I could have let go of the leash and let the dog run, catch the bird, waited for the dog to inevitably return, which I'm sure it would have. But instead, I held on. I held fast to the leash as the dog drug me my tiny body hanging to its side down the road. It was hot and it was summer and the fronts of both of my legs were gone. I mean, flesh gone to the bone. And I still have the scars on both knees and the fronts of both of my feet from it. But I didn't, I didn't let go until the dog stopped running. And to me, that's a perfect metaphor for my life, really. I refuse to let go. I refuse to give up. And sometimes that means I'm going to get beaten down. Sometimes I'm going to walk away scarred. And sometimes I'm going to be bleeding and broken. But what I have when that is over is to say, I, I did it. 
I did the thing. I tried as hard as I could to do the thing. You know, that's, that's the metaphor for my life. That's the thing if someone described me, they would say, I hope. And that's the thing in so many people. So many of us have this shared experience of childhood trauma. And so many of us are really survivors. Getting up every day, even on the days that you don't want to or that it seems impossible. And doing the thing over and over again, whatever the thing is. Taking care of your kids, going to work, paying your bills, writing your book. All of those things in one day. Because we're resilient. Our lives set us up for that kind of resiliency. And when that inner when that inner voice of fear tries to protect you, you just have to remind it. No, I'm I appreciate your concern, but I was built resilient. I was made resilient. I was forged in the fire of abuse and neglect, and I am capable. Thanks for listening. listening to Mama Mental. And while I am a registered nurse, nothing that I say in this podcast should be interpreted as medical advice. Please speak to your own healthcare provider. And if you are feeling suicidal, call the suicide helpline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255.